Without fail, each Fast and Furious movie seems to sell box office tickets like hotcakes. What is it about the films that has captured the world's imagination? And behind all the crazy stunts and fast-paced action, what idea is it perpetuating about masculinity? Welcome to Science of the Times Radio. Well, it's great to have with us this week our regular cultural and movie critic, Mark Hadley. Mark, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Daniel. And thanks for having me on the show again. It's good to have you back. It's actually the first time we've had you on this year, so I'm pretty excited. (laughs) Now, Mark, it's funny because Fast and Furious 9, or F9 as it's being called, it's part of the Fast and Furious movie franchise, was meant to be released this month in May, but it's actually being pushed back till June. It's a highly anticipated movie because the Fast and Furious franchise is one of the highest grossing film franchises there is. Now, for someone who's never heard of these movies somehow, can you just give us a bit of an idea what these movies are about? Oh, gosh. Now, you're going to get me to try and summarize the eight films that came before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, there's so far, there's actually been nine in the franchise. And this in F9, strangely, will be the 10th because there was a sort of an offshoot film that came out a couple of years back. But look, if you just need to know what Fast and the Furious is about, it's almost all in the title. It began very much as a car film about a undercover cop called Brian O'Connor who infiltrated a street racing crew who had been hijacking trucks. And that crew was run by a fellow called Dom Toretto, played you know famously by Vin Diesel. And so everything stems from that. Some of the films are about Brian O'Connor, the undercover cop, becoming an FBI agent and trying to save his career since he became friends with Dom in the first film. And a lot of the other films are about Dom's increasing scale of heists and things like that, right up to the point of him fighting terrorists towards the end of the latter films, him and his crew. And some of his crew members come in and out, some are dead one minute and strangely alive. The next have been burnt up in cars and then actually miraculously saved, have lost their memories and come back from amnesia. The scales of of money have just gone up and up and up. First, it's like a million-dollar heist. Now, it's a hundred-million-dollar heist. You get the idea that they're just reaching for bigger and bigger stages to set their dramas in. Does that give us a fair idea of what's going on? Yeah, it is pretty interesting because, to be honest, Mark, I grew up in the early 2000s, which is when the first couple of movies were hot property, right? And at the time... I remember one of my first experiences with the Fast and Furious movies is like my family and I, we went to a TV sort of a store where there were all these TVs set up. I think it was JB Hi-Fi or something or Maya. And they were playing one of the final scenes from one of the first two movies. I can't remember which one exactly, but they were playing the final scene. Those films really gripped the imagination of many people because there was so much culturally that was tied in with that at the time. People were buying a lot of Japanese cars and modifying them. For myself personally, I wasn't allowed to watch those movies because they were rated in and I was a kid. But I was allowed to play the Need for Speed Underground series of games, which were heavily inspired by these movies. Now, the interesting thing that you pick up on as you sort of look at the progress of these eight main movies plus the spin-off is that there has been this change over time from the, you know, nighttime underground street racing series kind of vibe to this sort of action vibe. Now, why is it that this sort of change has come about? Is it because if the film franchise had stuck with this street racing thing, it would be no longer relevant? What is it about this change in the series? Like, what has brought it about? 
Well, the first five films were very much kind of uh, heist films. You know, it's a very standard sort of genre in Hollywood production. And they were very much about hijacks and things like that. And that's because the world was looking for a certain degree of escapism then. But once you get to Fast and the Furious 6 or Fast and Furious 6, we start to take on terrorists in the same way that the world started to take on terrorists, that terrorism became a bit of a a go-to for the enemies. You know, it's an interesting thing when you watch film long enough, you realise that we switch enemies in a film according to what's going on in the world itself. So I remember particular films where you'll notice that the Koreans were the bad guys in some of the sort of James Bond films, and then it switched to the Chinese being the bad guys. But then we couldn't be making the Chinese the bad guys because they're now our major business partners. So at one stage, it was then the South Africans until apartheid was taken away. And now we weren't going to be fighting the South Africans anymore. And at this point in time, North Korea and a resurgent sort of Russia seem to be the biggest issues. And terrorism itself has become our biggest bogeyman. Mm. And this might seem like a Homer Simpson duh moment for people who are listening. But the truth is, back in the late 1990s, no one actually thought that terrorism was in fact a big thing. I remember I was doing my master's in politics back then, and I wrote a paper on terrorism and the possibility that one day it might become relevant again, where no one actually thought that terrorism meant anything skip forward about 10, 15 years, and terrorism now is everything. And so it's everything to the Fast and Furious franchise. So basically, they've been taking on everything from violent terrorist cell groups through to Middle Eastern or slash African terrorist groups to cyber terrorists. And that, in some respects, explains why we've changed our focus in terms of what's called the Fast Saga, the Fast and Furious franchise. It's really interesting what you're saying, Mark, because, you know, I've had the chance to be involved in film production myself. I've directed some short films and was actually recently the producer for a feature film. In my readings, I've come across this thing, this review, I think it was of a TV show where this critic mentioned that a film or a television series has to be relevant to the time period. It has to have some sort of contextual relevance. And look, at the end of the day, there's a lot of TV shows made about, you know, things that happened decades ago, but those things still can have some sort of connection to the modern day, even at the very least learning about the mistakes of the past so that they're not repeated. Is that sort of, you know, you mentioning that this post 9-11 sort of world that we're in, is it really informing a lot of the media that we're consuming? Absolutely. Look, one of the standard film types or archetypes for a script is called the life lesson film. And it's as you say, the life lesson film can't really tell you about life unless it has a touchstone in life itself. And so in some respects, even though these just look like car films, the Fast and Furious films, the truth is that they're dealing with issues which we are supposed to take away a lesson from. So a lot of the lessons that come from the Fast and Furious franchise are very much focused around family, for example. You know, family is the most important thing. Family is worth sacrificing for. A man will sacrifice for his family. And these are the sort of life lessons that we would nod our heads to as we watch these films. Yes, of course, what Dom's doing there for the sake of his sister or for the sake of his own son, you know, is perfectly understandable. 
But unless you set them in a context around which we can absorb that life lesson, unless there's some sort of linkage to the world around us, the lesson itself loses some sort of import and it becomes maybe what our parents used to think or what our grandparents or great-grandparents used to think, depending on how far the film goes back. So if you connect with the present day, it strengthens the message in a life lesson film. And in some respects, that's what these Furious franchise films are, life lesson films. They have very important things to say about the great issues that we face in life today. And I guess that's why they have more of a appeal towards a broader audience rather than just blokes who love mucking around with their cars and modifying them. And then, oh, there's a movie out about that sort of topic. Oh, let's go check that out. Hey. Well, that's, I mean, that's undeniable. If you look at the earnings of the nine films that have been so far, they start at $207 million at the box office and the latest spin-off was $759 million, but the two mainstream Furious films, Furious 7 and The Fate of the Furious, which is Furious 8, earned $1.5 billion and $1.2 billion at the box office. So there just aren't that many petrol heads in the world. You know, they're basically something that is scooping up a much larger audience. Now, some of that is the classic action-adventure, you know, ticket buyer who just wants a sort of a, a moment in fantasy land about what can and can't be done with cars and simple worlds with bad guys and good guys. But also, there's it's tapping into something else, and it's tapping into that idea that when the world itself is actually quite grim, we tend to pull inwards Now, this is not just something that's expressed in terms of film stories, where we like to have something that focuses, even though it might have international actors, it has a focus more and more on on life issues have to do with family and to do with drawing close to each other. It affects architecture, things like that. You might notice that houses might have got bigger, but they face more and more inwards, you know, particularly in Australia. We're less concerned about the backyard. In fact, we want as less backyard to maintain as we possibly can get. Mm. And we have larger entertainment rooms and larger video rooms and things like that. We are in a world now that has been somewhat daunted by what's happening on the international stage. And so we face inwards. And that's why films that point up family actually have an additional advantage at the box office or that point up individual concerns. They have that additional advantage. And Fast and Furious sort of fits in that slot. So to some degree, that's why, even though the critics say less and less about these films, they tend to earn more and more at the box office. And you should never disregard that because the ultimate vote on a film is whether or not you and I are going to go buy a ticket. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think the latter films of the Fast and Furious franchise seem to be tapping into this family thing a lot more. And then, you know, just referencing some Rotten Tomato reviews that actually the lowest reviewed movies, according to Rotten Tomatoes in the series are the first four. So the first four all rank below 38% on Rotten Tomatoes. And then the following ones where they really emphasize this sort of family element all have, you know, 70s and 80s. The series actually, according to Rotten Tomatoes, if you were to go off of Rotten Tomato reviews, peaked with Furious 7, which really sort of drove this point home. Obviously, it was also the last film that Paul Walker was in as far as that he filmed live scenes for archival footage was featured in uh, latter movies, but that was sort of an emotional point for many people who saw this family element of the movies really come out. Mm. Mm. And I think that that's a, that's a fair point to make, that you had this sort of confluence in Furious 7 
you have this confluence of Dom's family and Brian, who's become part of that family, and an outsider assassin, Jason Statham, plays this fellow called Decker, who's attacking the family. In fact, strangely, there's even a there's even a family link on the bad guy's side. You know, Jason Statham plays Decker, the older brother of Owen Shaw, who was a villain in a previous film. You know, so it's like family attacking family. But in the end, everything that our hero, Vin Diesel's Dom character does is very much organized around whether or not it's good for the family. And what he will do will be all about family. But interestingly, there's a parallel running alongside of that, which I, you know, I guess is a bit contradictory. Uh, and it's how we see masculinity in these films too. Now, just in case somebody's worrying that this has become a fairly highbrow, let me make it plain to you that on the one side, we've got an increasing idea of how valuable family is. And on the other hand, we've got an increasingly disconnected way about how responsibly men behave towards their family. It's a contradiction that can only be kept alive in in the cinemas because if it came out into the real world, families would destruct all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting you say that because, you know, as I was ironically driving home last night and I was thinking about (laughs) your article, it kind of brought me back to this point many years ago where, you know, a bunch of my friends and I were hanging around and I hadn't actually watched any of the Fast and Furious movies up until that point. And I remember one of my mates saying, are you really a man? (laughs) because I hadn't watched these movies. (laughs) Interesting point there, because you do touch on quite a bit in your article the the idea of, of men, of cars. Let's just touch on that one in particular about cars. Now, there was, you know, a time I feel like that cars were quite popular as far as modifying one's car and whatever, but that seems to be changing. I mean, that's obviously still a very a big culture, but it seems to be somewhat changing in the 21st century now a little bit. Would you say that that's a correct statement? It is indeed. Look, this is the interesting thing. This is why it's so easy to start seeing a separation between what's happening in the Fast and Furious films and what's happening in the real world. Because Because in the real world, cars are becoming less and less significant. Now, you might think in Australia where, you know, we have two and a half cars for every household, that cars couldn't be even more significant. But in the rest of the world, the number of vehicles per person is dropping. In fact, in Britain, the number of people getting licenses aged under 30 has been dropping steadily since the 1990s. Now, there's this increasing change in what actually cars represent. They used to be a benchmark in terms of uh, responsibility and a rite of passage, getting your license and becoming older and becoming a man, you know, as your mate said. But in fact, now it's less and less so. Cars have become less a necessary thing. We live in the majority of the world's population lives in cities now. So governments are putting more money into suburban and public transport. And the lifestyle itself is turning away from clogged highways and longer commutes towards working at home and and shorter time spent in vehicles. In fact, one particular person I quote in the article, an automotive analyst called Catherine Davidson, says that the car has to some degree been killed off by the smartphone. You know, so on the one hand, we used to have in the 1950s, it was all about going to the drive-in, you know, for teenagers to meet up. And in the 1980s, it was all about the mall. You know, you drive down and you'd be part of the mall culture. But now it's all about to, to connect. It's all about Facebook and texting and Twitter and instant messaging. It's the social media that are providing the degree of connection which cars used to provide. Mm. And so there's less need in our culture for cars, but they're still very, very significant as far as the films are concerned. So the question is, what is it that cars are providing if they're not providing our necessary means of transportation and connection? Yeah. 
there's multiple points that you just touched on that are, <laughs> that are so interesting. Well, first of all, you know, Mark, you and I both live in Sydney and something as simple as taking your car and driving it into the city is actually either going to take you a whole bunch of time depending on where you live and it's going to cost you a whole bunch of money depending on if you take a tollway or not. Now, if you, that's the faster way, but it's the more expensive way. So a lot of people, and myself included, would rather probably catch public transport in just because, you know, you can take your car in and it's an experience in itself. But then what's also more economical? Well, you know, it's better to catch public transport in that sense. And also the, the comment that you make from Catherine, also one quote that you included was that cars are not as relevant as a status symbol and getting a license is no longer a rite of passage. Now, that's very interesting because I don't know, Mark, I feel like owning a flashy car used to be seen or is not being seen as such a coveted thing anymore because it's almost judged. Well, I blame your generation for that, Daniel, basically because your generation is far more aware of the environmental imprint of particular commodities. So they know that the steel and the glass and the rubber and the plastics and the paints that go into making a car have a huge environmental footprint. And actually note in the article that the National Geographic says that one third of all US air pollution comes out of a tailpipe. So your generation has made us all hyper aware of the impact on the environment. And so the car has lost its shine, so mm. to speak, as a consumer product for measuring your status. In fact, these days, if you think about it, it's the higher-end technology that sets us aside. What sort of phone you carry says more about you than what sort of car you drive, what tribe you belong to. Are you Android? Are you iOS? Are you something else altogether? And to some degree, fashion too has, has moved in and taken the place so that dispersable consumer income is going against these sorts of things, against electronics, against shoes, less so against cars. And as you say, your mate's in a bit of a downward spiral. He would have been better off buying his car 20 years ago and everybody could have admired it. But right now, it's something he has to find a, a place to park and a space he can drive without it costing him $30 in tolls. Yeah, absolutely. Another really interesting story is that, you know, when I was turning 18 and, you know, everybody starts getting their licenses, they use their first paychecks to buy a car. It seems that the culture back in my day is that you, you want to try and make it as loud as possible. But that sort of <laughs> is no longer the case with these electronic vehicles. Like even if you look at Formula One used to be seen back in the day as, oh, it's so loud. Now these cars are being made as environmentally friendly. They're kind of hybrid vehicles as possible for lower environmental impact. And, you know, hybrid cars generally, because they're not fully reliant on a piston engine, don't make the same sound as a car back in the early 2000s with a three-inch exhaust on it would. <laughs> Which explains why, to some degree, when Volkswagen came out and confessed that they'd been faking their environmental tests for their vehicles, it became such a huge matter for society in general. And their sales plummeted directly because of that. And that's basically because we have a close association now with the environment and preserving the environment than we do with, say, the personal freedom associated with a vehicle. That said, you've got to ask yourself, and I guess we all do at this point, why do the Fast and Furious films still succeed if we all have a downer on the vehicle? Uh, and that's an interesting question in itself. Mm, absolutely. And it's really interesting because you pick up on some of the tropes of the Fast and Furious franchise, which includes dangerous driving I think there's been a cultural shift as far as discouraging that. Like we were discussing before we went on air, Mark, that I used to live in Adelaide. Now in Adelaide, there used to be this government division called the Motor Accident Commission, whose job was purely to discourage dangerous driving and using your phone while driving, those sorts of habits in a bid to curb the road toll. 
And some of their marketing tactics were really interesting because it would really play on this idea of masculinity sometimes from the other side of the coin that you wouldn't hear from the Fast and Furious franchise. So for example, do you really want to get busted, lose your license in front of your mates and look like an idiot? (laughs) which is an opposite message to what the Fast and Furious franchise has said in the past, which is like, do you want to look fully sick doing epic skids and doing dangerous stunts in your car? Mm. Now, that's really interesting because government agencies have had to go hard on the idea of your maturity, particularly as a man. I think there are fewer car ads about women, but they've had to go in hard on your maturity because there is a lot that still sits in the culture that the freedom that a car represents and your ability to control that suggests that you have arrived as a man. So regardless of what we think about the environmental impact of vehicles, vehicles still occupy this cultural place that suggests that that they represent masculinity. And so what the government agencies are trying to do is trying to chip away at that and say, look, you know, no one thinks big of you or um, you're not particularly a man just because you can drive this way. When it's opposed to a culture that still says that the cinemas, regardless of what we think about cars, that the more you can handle a vehicle at high speed, the more excessively risky behavior behind the wheel, the more masculine you are. And there's actually a report that was released in Australia just a couple of years back called Driving Cultures. It was penned by Sarah Redshaw. And she draws very strong lines still between young men, regardless of what they drive, and the idea that they are more men if they can, or more male, if they can handle a car at a particularly high speed or in a risky way, regardless of what the culture says about cars in general. Mm. It's really interesting what you pick up on. I'll connect it back to something else that I've also watched, which is the game changes. Now, whether or not someone agrees with the ideas presented by that documentary, one of the really interesting ones was the the link between meat in the past has been viewed as a measure of one's manhood, that if you eat meat, you're more of a man. If you don't, Hmm. you're less of a man. So there's some of these stereotypes that have existed for a prolonged period of time. But then the question is, Mark, that if a car isn't a measure of one's manhood, as is a stereotype that has been perpetuated over time, then what is a real man? Well, before I jump onto that, I want to just outline again something that is not masculine, or at least something that society has put forward as masculine for a long time. You see, we think it's just risky behavior with cars. Oh, that's a, you know the mark of a man who really knows what he's doing. But if you go back 100 years, the same thing was happening with horses and carriages. One of the interesting ways that young men were dying back in the 1800s in Australia was by carriage accidents and by riding their horses too furiously and falling off them and, and dying accordingly. So what we find by looking at something like that and transferring it into the current age is it's risky behavior. It's irresponsible behavior and somehow rising above the consequences of irresponsible behavior that we're telling ourselves culturally is marking out a man. But actually, if you look at something like the Bible, for example, and I'm a Christian, so it's a good touchstone for me, it actually goes in a different direction. It says that culturally speaking, the the sign of real manhood is not risky behavior, but responsible behavior. In fact, you don't even need the the Bible to tell you this. There are infinite numbers of cultures to have a look at that put manhood around, build manhood around being a husband or being a father or, or being a teacher or being a leader. And what these things have in common is they all have men behaving responsibly, which is probably why we've arrived at my great grief with the fast saga. It's actually presenting us again and again and again, an idea of masculinity, which is all about behaving irresponsibly. 
They say it's about family on the surface, but they constantly risk the lives of innocent families in the way that they drive. They say it's about their friendships, but they encourage their friends to live dangerously. So even though on the one level, the films are appealing to us because we love this sort of story of family and what you'll do for your family, ironically, they're encouraging us to behave in the way that's probably the worst way towards a family. Whereas the Bible will pull us back another direction and say, look, if you really want to be a man, your love is going to be steadfast. You're going to be faithful, which basically means you're going to care about the effects that your behavior has on those around you. Do you think that this is still a problem or do you think that it's, are we moving in a positive direction as far as society goes towards dispelling this, the sort of negative aspects of this idea? I don't think we're dispelling it much at all. I mean, the reason why is that ever since the postmodernism of the 1980s and 90s, we've actually felt very, very comfortable with the idea in society of holding contradictory ideas in our heads. So it used to be, you know, in this sort of enlightenment on through to the early 20th century, that if a matter was proved, it was proved. You know, if something was shown to be bad for us, then it was bad and we shouldn't have anything to do with it. You know, it's just a rationalist world in which we lived in. Mm. When we arrived in postmodernism and truth became something we could all negotiate, then it meant that we could actually hold conflicting ideas in our heads. Now, what are the two that I'm talking about today? One is that family is valuable. The other is it's perfectly acceptable to be a man by behaving irresponsibly. Now, the two don't work together, except in the minds of the 21st century man and woman. You can have these things simply because this magical philosophy called individualism, which basically says I can define what's good for me, regardless of the effect that it has on other people. So I believe family is important and I believe it's okay for me to behave irresponsibly. No, I don't really see these actually going anywhere anytime soon. It's interesting because some of the things you just mentioned there, they almost seem to be tied in with one's maturity. Now, like if you're below 25, your insurance company is going to slug you much more because you're (laughs) much more likely to go like undertake risk-taking behavior. Do you think that it's just a normal part of growing up to go through this stage where, you know, when you're 18 and like between 18 and 25, you're more likely to do a few crazy things and then later on you mellow out a bit? Or is it some Something that's important to see that sort of change come about. Now, I think that's a really good point. Are we looking at something that is just uh, sociological, as in something that we transfer through from life stages, or are we looking at an historical change, something that is actually different today? Personally, I believe we're looking at something historical. The truth is that ever since the baby boomer generation forward, we've entrenched the idea that you can just act for yourself. So for want of a better phrase, people aren't choosing to grow up now, in, to some degree that they're not choosing to accept responsibility rather they're choosing to take on personal fulfillment in the face of receiving uh, responsibility and taking that on instead. So we're all probably familiar with the guy who is in fact a 40-year-old teenager who refuses to spend wisely or live wisely, who doesn't believe that serious relationships are going to be part of his life anytime soon. And that's a tragedy that probably didn't exist, or at least not in measurable levels, in society 100 years ago. Men were expected as a rite of passage to take on responsibility, but now we're not expected to do so. So I don't really see it as a stage that people go through. I see it as an expression of something much larger. And you think about it in terms of the Fast and the Furious films, 
Dom is well and truly, the hero of the franchise is well and truly in his 40s now. There's no doubt about that. But he doesn't behave in any way in a responsible manner, at least on paper he does towards his family. But every time he steps behind that wheel, well, that's a different matter. He's allowed to do the craziest sorts of things to achieve a, a good goal or a good outcome. And I think that if he's our benchmark of what's heroic for masculinity, then yeah, I, I think things have changed. We're in a bit of a trouble, troubled place. Now, Mark, it's really interesting because, you know, F9 is coming out in June in Australia. And then beyond that, there's two more movies planned. They're saying that they're going to finish off at Fast and Furious 11, which is pretty interesting because that's an odd number. Now, there's more spin-offs and stuff being planned as well, like a Hobson Shaw sequel. I think I read that there's talk of a sequel there. But is there is a franchise to the end sort of planned because of this reason that it's running out of steam on this idea? I think that what is being planned as a reinvention of the character. So you see, you look at the look at Star Wars as a good way of mapping what's happening with franchises. Arcs, story arcs come to an end, but then the spin-offs themselves take on life and they become the next stage, so to speak, of a broader product. And so industry-wise, people are looking for the never-ending franchise. Now, I know that the actors have spoken to the media and said that they see themselves involved in no more than three more films, beginning with F9. But where the producer will take that is another thing entirely. It's very, very hard to turn off the faucet when it's been delivering so much money. And I think that to some degree, the industry will keep going in this direction. Although, look out for it. I think they'll try and turn the corner a little and spin off in a new direction, but the same sort of thrills and spills behind a wheel. Well, it will be very interesting to see what sort of happens with the franchise in the future, what sort of direction it takes and, you know, some very interesting points that you unpack in your article, which people should totally check out on signsofthetimes.org.au about the connection between culture and the Fast and Furious movies. So very interesting. And I hope that our listeners will check that out. But in the meantime, thanks, Mark, so much for joining us today. This has been a very eye-opening and interesting discussion. And I really appreciate your time with us. Oh, always happy to and drive safely. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand. This is an Adventist media podcast.